we start? Yeah, I think so. Close enough. So welcome to this um, October retreat here in Jhana Grove. And it's a very beautiful weather here. When it rains, I always consider that to be a blessing from the heavenly beings at the beginning of the, of the retreat. It keeps it nice and cool, and it also means it keeps away some of the flies and the snakes and the other bugs which inhabit this place. We don't have to be worried about such things because all, even the snakes here, they're all Buddhist snakes. <laughs> so they're always really kind. And seriously, one of the important things which helps enormously with your meditation is when you feel safe here. And being safe, you know, it means you are safe from anything which is harming or hurting you, safe from people criticizing you. Remember, people in this retreat, they all keep their precepts. I know that some people find it difficult to remember all the precepts. So some people will be keeping eight, well, actually some people could be keeping 311 precepts. <laughs> some people keeping 227 precepts. Some people will be keeping eight precepts, and some people keeping five precepts, and some people will be keeping two precepts. You know the two precepts? The two precepts form the foundation of all the precepts, never doing anything which harms another being, not doing anything which harms oneself. Very simple. But it also means, why would you want to harm anybody, or harm any animal, or harm yourself? So look after one another, be kind to one another. During this, that's the basic two precepts. I don't have to give it to you, those precepts, or the five precepts, or the eight precepts. I just expect you to understand them, and to be mindful, and simply enough, you don't need to harm or hurt anybody you don't need to harm or hurt yourself. And because of that, you know, we do uh, not encourage, but also you know, just really sort of try, not enforce, but make a bit more than encouragement to try and keep what they call the noble silence. So noble silence is very easy. In other words, it's not just total silence. Total silence is not noble. Noble silence is if you see that somebody is sleeping in and they're missing their breakfast, you can just very gently, breakfast is ready. Or if you, <laughs> or if you see someone, if there is a snake around, you tell there's a snake over there. I sometimes, I make this as a joke, but it's serious, because sometimes people really want to keep noble silence. They see there's a snake over there, so they can't say snake, they go... <laughs> <laughs> they try and mime, and make an idiot of themselves. The whole point, remember the purpose of things like noble silence, is trying not to invade another person's peace and quiet. In other words, you know, to try and, look, and keep a peaceful uh, lifestyle here. So it's all right to tell them, you know, you just, you know, you've left your, your cup over there. Please take it and wash it. Something simple is not a problem. And if you give simple instructions, 
he doesn't take much of conversation at all. Well, the noble silence is really supposed to talk about, or mean, is that you don't get into conversations with one another. You go and wash your cup. But you know that sometimes washing cups makes a lot of water. And anyway, it's my cup. Whatever the germs are on it, I've already got them. So you don't have to worry about that at all. So just don't be a control freak. Don't worry about that. It's my cup. I will look after it. So you can just, just be peaceful. Now that type of conversation, that's what is breaking noble silence. And of course, we have... Well, why do we keep noble silence? The why is also really important. Because once you understand why, that really uh, enforces the reason and the practice of noble silence. And the story which many of you have heard many, many, many times, and I'll keep on telling the same story unless people are just keep that noble silence perfectly. They never do, but that's why I have to keep on telling the story. And these stories which I say, if you think you've heard them many times, I've heard them many more times than you. <laughs> and when people ask, why do you keep telling the same old stories? Because you keep making the same old mistakes. <laughs> and that was the story of Lao Tzu. He had his wonderful uh, monastery somewhere in China. And when he would go every evening for a walk with one of his disciples, but it had to be a silent walk. That was really important. So he chose a young disciple to go on the walk with him. And when they got to a ridge in the mountains, there was this amazing sunset. Just, you know, the oranges and the golds and the crimson stretched across the horizon. It was a work of art. And this poor young man, he was so excited, he forgot the golden rule and said, wow, what a beautiful sunset. And at that, the uh, Lao Tzu turned around, walked back silently to the monastery, and then when he got back to his monastery, only then could he speak, and he said, that young man can never go on a walk with me again. He broke the golden rule. And that was such a, a very strict punishment. And the other um, student said, why be so strict? What's wrong with saying what a beautiful sunset? And this was where the reason for noble silence became so clear. He said, when my student said, what a beautiful sunset, he was not watching the sunset anymore. He was watching the words. You have a choice to put things into names and think that that can describe anything you, you perceive or cognize. Or you can just watch it in silence and get far closer to the truth. All words deceive. They're only approximations to what's out there. And if you think that the words are the truth, then you're just the same as that simile which I told a few days ago of the professor of philosophy who heard that they were opening up a new five-star restaurant 
particular in the city. He liked his food. So he made an appointment at this restaurant and he had to wait a couple of months for a booking. It was so popular. And when he went there, he dressed up in a nice suit and tie. Not like any of you here. <laughs> You'd be never allowed in a five-star restaurant in the kitchen, but never mind. Neither would I. So anyway, he turned up in a beautiful, in a nice, smart suit. The maitre d. I think I get this right. I've never been to a fine restaurant like that. I remember once going to a fine restaurant, one of the finest restaurants in Singapore. It's way up on the top of a building. It was in time for me to have some lunch, but I was so busy talking to people, I never ate anything. <laughs> it's one of the rules of eating. You can't have something going in the mouth and talking as it's coming out either. So you can do one or the other, eat or talk. So you know, I was talking, it doesn't matter. I had enough spare. <laughs> so anyway, uh, he had his maitre d' looked at his ID and found out, yes, you have a, uh, a booking in this restaurant. He took him to his table. And this was a really fine restaurant. All the tables were made out of like mahogany and just you know, all the, all the um, cutlery was silver and beautiful glasses for water or when he had his wine. And the but it was like a butler, not an ordinary waiter. It's not like going into McDonald's. It was this waiter, you know, came in and he was like a butler, you know, with tails and a nice uh, suit, and the butler gave him the menu. Thank you. And so the professor took the menu, then the professor read the menu, ate the menu, paid his bill and left. <laughs> he never ate anything except the paper, because the professor of philosophy didn't know the difference between the words and the meaning. There's a great difference between the menu and the food. Are there any professors of philosophy here today? <laughs> if there are, I apologize. <laughs> but anyway, you get the meaning there. That's why we have the noble silence. When you are talking about the sunset, you're not seeing it. When you're thinking about it, you're seeing the words. So the noble silence allows you to be more mindful, more aware, and you understand more about what's going on. But also, please remember, there's many people on this retreat, and to allow them to feel safe on this retreat, if they do start talking, don't go and tell them off and say, you should be quiet, you should be silent. Please excuse me, you know the old joke? The four monks on the vow of silence, one sneezed. The other one said, bless you. Another monk said, you've broken your vow of silence. Aha, so have you. He said another monk, and the fourth monk said, I'm glad I'm the only one here who can keep quiet. <laughs> so if you tell someone else for talking, you're just as bad as they are. So instead, what do we do here when somebody is talking? you give them the one finger sign. You know the one finger sign? 
No, not that one, this one. <laughs> That's okay to do. But also, noble silence doesn't mean scowling at people. Ugh. Instead, you are always allowed to smile at people. You know, to give your support, because sometimes people go through hard patches on a retreat, and a little smile, sometimes is all they need to show that you are friendly, it's a safe place, we care about you. And that means that people feel more relaxed. When it comes to all the other um, things we're supposed to do here about eating, I think that has all been explained in the briefing. Is that correct? Okay. And with the schedule, please, on the schedule, please don't stick to it. What time do we get up in the morning? Please don't stick to it. You can always get up earlier if you want to. <laughs> no. The first few days, I don't know how many of you have come from Melbourne or Sydney or overseas. Quite a few of you. So some of you may have what we call jet lag. You know, that you have to just allow yourself to adapt to like a new time zone. So don't force yourself. And all these stories, the one which sticks out was of this executive from Sydney when I taught a retreat in Sydney some years ago. And she came in the middle of the night. Now I couldn't sort of see when she checked in because she was, you know, tying up all the loose ends before she could actually escape to the retreat. So the first morning she just asked for a, like a quick interview. And I told her, look, you know, you look so exhausted. Like many people these days do. They work way too hard. But they've got no choice sometimes. So she was really exhausted. And I told her, the first few days do the sleeping meditation. Get to know your mattress and your pillow. Be kind to your body. You need sleep. And this is what happened. Because she was in a dormitory, not your own room, there was three other women with her in her room in this uh, retreat center. And she said she got up for the breakfast, and straight after breakfast, she went into the dormitory and lay down on her bed and fell asleep and got up at lunch. At lunch, she had a good lunch, and after lunch, she went back to her dormitory room, lay down and went to sleep again. And then in the interview, she said, all the people in my room, they're just so angry at me for sleeping. And I said, look, they're not angry at you, they're jealous. They wish they had the guts to do that. And I said, well done. You're being kind to your body and giving it a break. And she slept for about, you know, many hours for the first two or three days. And after the third day, she knows she didn't need to sleep so much. 
So she started coming to the morning meetings and the talk and the lunch and everything. And she soon caught up with everybody else. The first two or three days she hardly did any meditation at all. Just relaxation, getting her body fit. And but because she prepared her body with a lot of kindness for those first two or three days, when she did meditate on the fourth, fifth, sixth day, her body was just so amenable, she could get much deeper in the meditation. And I say this you now with honesty, when it got to the last couple of the days of the retreat, she was way ahead of others. She got some very deep, good meditation. And I tell that to people because you have to be a friend to your body if you want to get some good meditation. I know many people do loving-kindness meditation, but they don't know about loving-kindness at all. Come on, body, sit up straight. Come and listen to the meditation retreat. I've been coming here for the years. I'm a nun. You know, I've, I've got to show people just how great or how wonderful nuns are. So sit up straight. I say, straight, straight, straight. <laughs> That's a very silly thing to do. And honestly, when I was a young monk, I had lots of sloth and torpor. And I thought there was something wrong with me. And I, we had all these little tricks we used to do to try and make sure that we wouldn't fall asleep during the morning meetings. And you know the one which I did? We had the matchboxes. They're okay, those little uh, animals. They're, they're Afghanistan, no, they're Af what are they called? Afghanistan millipedes or something or whatever. They're very nice. They're just. Very friendly. Oh, they're very friendly, yeah. They just come to listen to a Dharma talk, <laughs> and hopefully in the next life they get a much better rebirth. Yeah, okay. So anyway, so where was I with the matchbox? Matchbox, so you put a matchbox on top of your head, but just a tray without the cover on. I think many of you have seen what happens. You put the matchbox on your head with lots of matches in it, so if you start to nod and get sleepy, the matchbox falls on the floor and you can hear it. So of course what happened with me that it took me a couple of days and I beat my sloth and torpor. And that's what I thought, because the matchbox wouldn't fall off my head. And then one of the other monks came to me and said, Ajahn Brahm, I've been watching you. This is what you're doing. Instead of the normal way of nodding, you are going like this. <laughs> <laughs> And obviously that is what happens. So it didn't, it didn't defeat the sloth and torpor at all. And then later, it was wisdom, if you like, insight, which was overcome sloth and torpor for me. Because I had to uh, redo my visa, had to go down to, it was in Thailand, had to go down to Bangkok for that. And the place we were staying in Bangkok was a new building for monks in Wapbawan. And in there, the rooms had mosquito netting, so I could get a good sleep without the mosquitoes waking up in the middle of the night. 
because the time mosquitoes were sadists. They wouldn't just bite you, they'd go in your ear and say, bzz, 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 we're coming, bzz, 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 we're coming. <laughs> I don't know why they had to announce it, just come bite me. <laughs> so, just, just, but anyway, so, so we had a good night's sleep, and of course the food in Bangkok was much better than the food which we got in the northeast of Thailand. And number, the best part was that one of the monks there uh, had found they'd built an air-conditioned room, uh, mostly just for giving lectures. But no lecturer got up that early in the morning, at four o'clock before the arms round. So we got the key, and every morning at four o'clock, we'd sit in an air-conditioned room. Oh, we had a good night's sleep, we had good food, I had no sloth and torpor at all. I was fully awake, it was easy, no problem. And then of course you realise what the real problem was. I was a, a young man, born in London, not used to the hot, steamy, mosquito-ridden jungles, not enough sleep at night, terrible food, that make anybody sleepy in the morning. It wasn't my fault, it had causes and effects. That's the important thing to understand. If you have enough rest, the temperature's okay for you, and you have good food, you'll find you do have energy in your body. You don't get so sleepy. It's a physical thing, not a mental thing. And so that was so important for me to understand that. If you try to meditate too much, of course, what you're doing, you're fighting your mind. The mind will win. So don't fight, understand. When it comes to things like restlessness, it's so similar. For years, again, I had a restless mind. You know, your mind will just go all over the place and think about this and think about that. No reason for it at all. As a monk, I lived a simple life. No responsibilities as a young monk. In these places over in Thailand, there's no responsibilities at all, nothing to think about. But still, my mind would get restless. And then I... The biggest breakthrough was say, why does my mind want to run away? Any of you, why would you like to run away from China Grove? Because you're not happy here. Because you don't want to be here. It may be because someone's upset you, or some fear happens, or I tell a bad joke which is offensive. Oh, please apologize in advance. I don't think I've said a bad joke which is offensive yet, but probably will do. <laughs> I'll try my best, but anyway. That's another reason why I tell bad jokes. That's, it's called conditioning. This is anyone who wants to know dependent origination. The reason I tell bad jokes, oh, here we go. There was a man who had an accident on his motorbike. He went to the hospital, and of course, you know, sometimes doctors make mistakes, like everybody. And so they amputated the wrong leg. It does happen. 
So they had to put him straight back into surgery and amputate the other leg. So both legs were taken off. It's not, not, not a laughing matter for him. He lost both his legs. And so as soon as he could, he sued the doctor and the hospital. He lost his case. He didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> That's a sick joke. <laughs> the reason it's a, it's a sick joke, the reason I tell it, because my dad told that joke. I remember getting me on that one. And I've been conditioned by my father to tell bad jokes. It's cause and effect, dependent origination. It's not my fault. <laughs> but anyhow, just the restlessness, you know, the, just to sum it up, I was not a good friend of my mind. I was trying to train it and mold it into some pattern of a perfect meditating monk. Because I wasn't a friend of my mind, very often when we started to meditate, it was like, here I was, and my mind said, I'm not you again. What are you going to tell me to do this time? You're going to tell me to watch my breath, breathing in, breathing out, breathing out, breathing out. I've been there, done that. So my mind and I had a bad relationship with one another. That was the reason why it kept wanting to run away. For no reason at all, except just I didn't sort of, I wasn't kind to my mind. So then I gave it some kindness. Okay, mind, if you want to go, you can go. I'm not going to stop you. When you come back, please come back and let me know. And that's the old story <laughs> to, to emphasize the point. One of the the ladies in Perth some years ago, she had a five or six year old son. And a five year old, I think it was five year old, one day he had an argument with his mummy. And the mother, and the kid said to his mummy, Mummy, I do not love you anymore. I'm leaving home. Now, those of you women with kids, you may sort of um, understand this, but haven't had the guts to do it. But his mum said, okay, I'll help you pack. <laughs> you may think that's a good idea. But this woman actually did it. So I went into the kid's bedroom and helped him pack the important stuff of life, his Spider-Man underwear or whatever he was wearing, and a few other little things, his favourite teddy bear. And then, oh, before you go, darling, I'll give you some lunch. You know, life is a long journey. You can't go in on an empty stomach. So I went into the kitchen, made his favourite sandwich and put it in a nice uh, paper, brown paper bag. And then wished his son a good life as uh, she opened the door of her house and the son walked down the, street, uh, the garden path to the gate, opened the gate and turned left to go into his life at five years of age. What do you think happened next? About... 100 meters or 50 meters down the road, the five-year-old got so terribly homesick, he turned around, <laughs> walked back through the garden gate. The mother hadn't moved. She was still there. She knew what would happen. Because she let him go with some love and kindness, 
not telling him, don't be stupid, you can't leave home at five years of age, I'm going to tell your dad. You can't do this, I'll tell the police. Instead of scaring the, the kid, he said, okay, I'll help you pack. And just give a, you know, a nice gift, like a lunch for the kid. And off the kid went, and of course he came straight back. That's how to solve the restless mind. If your mind wants to go off anywhere, say, oh, off you go. Give it some sandwiches <laughs> and a good hug. And then off it goes. And then soon you get the idea, why do I, why do I want to leave a nice person like this? Was always kind to me. And then you change the relationship you have to your own mind. You become friends. Yeah, your mind will make mistakes sometimes, but mistakes are part of life and it's how we learn. If you didn't make mistakes, you wouldn't get many insights. So be happy to make mistakes, be kind to your mind, learn together, be very friendly. And after a while, Restlessness is gone. You change your attitude to things. And part of this, you know, for a long time I used to travel a lot, so I got a lot of insight from all the journeys which I, I went, I made. But, you know, for a couple of years because of COVID, it didn't go very far at all, but now you're starting to have your air tickets booked and have flights planned for somewhere else soon. But then people ask me, don't you get tired of, of flying? I don't fly. In all these years, I've never flied once. I've gone in uh, many different air aircrafts, but I've never flown. I just sit in the seat and the plane does the flying. I don't go anywhere. I sit down and enjoy the in-flight service, no, the insight service. <laughs> and you can see that little change of attitude. Restlessness? What is restlessness? A lot of restlessness is you are somewhere and you want to be somewhere else. You're in the breath and you're thinking about dinner. Why don't, if you are thinking about dinner, just be mindful you're thinking about dinner? Wherever you are, that's where you happen to be. Then you find the restlessness is not there anymore. So after a while, whatever you are aware of, let that be the object of your awareness. Whatever that happens to be, as long as it's happening now. And then you find restlessness is gone. Pretty easy. And also because you're not fighting your mind, you don't get so tired. You don't get the sloth and torpor, which a lot of times comes because you spend so much time trying to train your mind instead of trying to understand your mind. When you understand the mind, then it's very easy for it to... It comes to the point where you're so at peace with your own mind that you chill out together, you hang out together for hours, not because of uh, control or discipline, because, because your mind is with its best friend. That's you. So please be the best friend to your mind. That kindness 
is part of our meditation practice. Yeah, you can watch many other different things in the meditation practice, but the kindness has always to be there. So what type of meditation practice do we teach here? Kindness, but more, more than that. The old story, because sometimes people say, do you teach Vipassana, do you teach Samatha, what do you, what do you teach? All I ever teach is just the story of uh, Sam, his partner Vi, the dog Meta, and the other little dog, Anapana. They had two pets, a Meta and Anapana. And one day after lunch, Sam said to his uh, partner, let's go up Meditation Mountain for a nice climb. Sam, his full name was Sam Atta, <laughs> he wanted to go up there because it's nice and peaceful up Meditation Mountain. His partner, Vi, what was her surname? name? Vi Passana. <laughs> Vi wanted to go up there. <laughs> because he got some incredible views up on top of Meditation Mountain and she had one of these amazing cameras, you know, not just these uh, hand-front cameras, like the big Canon camera that can take amazing filters and stuff, amazing shots. She had one of those, so she got that ready with lots of film in it. And their two dogs, Meta and Anapanasati, they went with them. And sometimes you look at animals like dogs, sometimes they're wisdom. And you think, maybe they are wiser than human beings. Because they don't think why they're doing things. They just go up there for the sheer fun and the wisdom and the stillness. Those qualities of meditation which are like emotional positives. Stillness, peace, insight, these are things which really can affect your heart and bring you so much joy. So anyway, they went up Meditation Mountain. When they got halfway up, Sam had to stop because it was so peaceful, even halfway up. Vi was clicking her camera. Oh, it's amazing. Just even halfway up, you can see so far. And Meta, the dog, she was running around in circles, wagging her tail like it might fall off. You know what dogs are like when they're really excited and happy. And Anapana, you know what Anapana means, don't you? The breath. Anapana was just, you know, almost disappearing. It was just so smooth and easy. You could hardly see Anapana halfway up. But even though the two dogs, you know, one was just enjoying it, even the two dogs can appreciate the peace and see the great view. And when they got to the top of Meditation Mountain, oh, that was so still. Sam was just so fulfilled, it's incredible stillness. Vi, she could also feel the stillness but with her camera, just very softly, click, getting these amazing insights. And Sam would also get those insights, they were up the top there. But don't forget Meta, 
the dog, met the dog, joy, loving kindness. That was so incredibly strong on the top of Meditation Mountain. Anapana wasn't to be seen. She had disappeared, vanished totally away. Because disappearance and vanishing is also part of insight and stillness when things are no longer there. So that's the story. <laughs> so what meditation do you do? Do you sabata, vipassana, metta, anapana? Which one? They all go together. You can't split them up. It's one family. Just seen from different angles. So that's what we're going to be doing here. And you know it makes meditation so easy. Do you want to do the hard meditation or the easy meditation? Which one do you want? <laughs> and the easy meditation is basically, this is just an introduction, I'll give more details later on. Here's the one on, he called it the Emperor's Three Questions. Any of you read some of my books? I have these stories in the books, and sometimes, you know, this is, I think, opening the door of your heart book. Some people think, oh, this is just ordinary stuff. We want the deep stuff, the profound teachings of Buddhism and meditation. But please be careful, because some people think that the deep stuff is stuff which you cannot understand. And if you can understand it, therefore it cannot be deep. <laughs> I used to do that. I remember just going to these lectures on Buddhism as a student. And afterwards, when we come out with your friends, you'd just be discussing, oh, yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, that was so deep. Did you understand it? No, but it was deep. <laughs> And there's something very wrong there. And of course, I contrast that with, because I was a scientist, a physicist, and many of you know this gentleman, Werner Heisenberg. People know him as the founder of the Heisenberg's Uncertainty Principle. But one of his great statements was, if you understand quantum physics, which is supposed to be very difficult to understand, if you really understand it, you can explain it to a barmaid serving you a drink in a pub, and she will understand it. Your ability to convey that message to another is measured by the depth of your own understanding. So when you hear profound teachings. If you don't understand my profound teachings, it's because I don't understand them either. <laughs> Basically, it's gobbledygook rubbish. So, when these teachings, you can understand them, they can be incredibly profound. And the Empress Three Questions was one of those. In brief, when is the most important time? Yeah, so you're not worried about going to bed this evening, because now is the only time you have. <laughs> Number two, it was the Empress of Questions. Who's the most important person in the whole world? 
<laughs> some of you are breaking noble silence by speaking, but never mind. I ask you a question. Now, the most important person was the person right in front of you, whoever that happens to be. And at the time, when I first read that, that just rocked me. I remember just getting up and just walking down the streets, just, wow. I always thought the most important person was maybe it could be your father or some god or some vice chancellor or something. But to say it's the person right in front of you, it meant that I could connect with those persons. They were important. And it also reminded me about how to meditate. What's the most important meditation object to be aware of? Don't say the breath, don't say nimittas, don't say the body, don't say whatever is right in front of you right now. That's the most important meditation object in the whole universe. Give it this moment and whatever you're aware of importance. And number, two, number three, what's the most important thing to do? If it's, say, some hindrance or some, you've got some devilish scheme to kill Ajahn Brahm this evening, to murder him, and <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but even if it's a very bad thought, what to do with it? What's the most important thing to do with whatever you're aware of right now? Care for it. Look upon it with kindly eyes. And you find out if you look at things with kindly eyes, all the negative, harmful, hurtful, precept-breaking parts of it, they, 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 they just disappear. You can't sustain it. Those empathy questions, for one year of building the Iron Monastery, I made that, actually one range retreat some years ago, I made that the meditation instruction for all the monks. Now is the most important time. Whatever you're aware of right now is the most important thing in the whole world. Give that more precedence than any limiters or jhanas or whatever. And be kind to what you're experiencing. That is powerful meditation. It's not what you're watching so much as how you're watching it with the kindness and giving this moment importance. You cannot be restless. If you practice that, this restlessness doesn't have any meaning anymore. You're here with whatever it is. And if any of you get sickly or you get, uh, say, you can't go to sleep at night or whatever, please try that meditation. That's the only time I have. This moment, how I feel right now, it feels terrible. I feel just really tired. I feel this way. I understand it. It's important. It's come to teach you a lesson. And if you try and get rid of it to go somewhere else, you're not understanding how you feel and all the different sensations which come up. And when you're kind to it, it doesn't last that long. So these are beautiful ways of meditating. And anybody who's ever sick, I know somebody years ago, they said they had terrible cancer, they couldn't meditate. I said, what are you talking about? You may be not able to watch your breath. You may not be able to get into jhanas yet, but how about just right now, how do you feel? 
You know it's terrible, but it's here. It's right in front of you. Care for it. Instead of trying to get rid of it to try and get somewhere else. So that's a different way of, a powerful way of meditating. And you find you can do that any old time. And it's so peaceful and so easy. So I really bother to give more instructions like this, but the last thing before we finish off, please remember at the end of this retreat, I will not be giving you any certificates. I won't be grading you. I won't give you like A, B, C, D, E, F, what they do for kids in school. Uh, anyway, what does F mean in school? <laughs> yeah, you've heard these teachers too many times. Because <laughs> many kids say, I've got an F at school today. Yeah, people think that means fail. You should ask the teacher what it really means. F stands for fabulous. E stands for excellent. D stands for delightful. C stands for, I don't think I've ever seen I know that A stands for arrogant. <laughs> you just turn it around to stop judging yourself or judging other people. Your job is to, to learn, not to try and achieve. That's one of the statements of Ajahn Chah. I'm going to repeat here, I'll repeat it many times. You meditate not to get something, not to achieve anything. You meditate to let go of things. To have less things, not more things. We're not trying to get some more certificates to hang on our wall. Excellent meditator. Enlightened, totally enlightened, more enlightened than the next person. Who's the most enlightened in this room? Let's have a contest. <laughs> We're not competing against each other. We're not competing against ourselves. The whole idea of a personal best. If there's no person in here, how can there be a personal best or a personal worst? So imagine, you've got nothing to do. Nothing to achieve. Nothing, nowhere to go. You've heard all those statements before. Nowhere to go, nothing to achieve, blah, blah, blah. Wonderful, how about trying that? And you're just sitting here. This is the most important moment, the only moment you've got. Here we are. What are you aware of? That's the most important. Be kind. Simple thing, but I'm not doing anything. Yes, exactly. The last teaching before I finish off is Ajahn Chah's great teachings. I was a student of him for eight and a half years. And the reason, you know the reason I came to Australia, the reason I'm still here? Yeah, I made a vow as a young monk. And I kept it. Once I saw Ajahn Chah, okay, he's going to be my teacher. My vow was I wouldn't ask to go anywhere I'd wait till he sent me somewhere. And when he asked me to come back, I'd come back. That was like a sacrifice of my life for the teacher. So if you want me to go somewhere, I'll go. No arguments. If you want me to come back that time, then I'll come back. 
And then what happened? Then he sent me to Australia. And just about a month after he sent me here to Perth, Ajahn Chah had a stroke and he couldn't speak anymore. <laughs> That's why I've been stuck here ever since. <laughs> okay, so it's like a funny part to that, but that's actually true. That's what happened. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> Might as well be. He can't speak anymore, so he can't tell me to go anywhere. Although once, I share with you, once I remember just when he was very sick, he couldn't speak anymore. I hadn't died yet. But then I had this, this really clear dream of him. You know, one of these um, lucid dreaming. And he was giving me a teaching, like a Dharma talk. I thought, wow, this is amazing. Your teacher, he hasn't been able to teach anything for years because you know, he's been bedridden and couldn't teach. And he was giving me this personal teaching. I made a resolution, you know, it's in my sleep. But I was lucid enough. This is amazing teachings he was given. I must remember this. I made that resolution to remember it. And of course, as soon as he finished, I woke up. And I couldn't remember a thing. That's <laughs> 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 just so depressing. <laughs> anyway, all the interesting stuff we, we have in our life. But anyway, one thing I always remember, we meditate not to accumulate things, but to allow things to disappear, to let go. To have less, not more. And the teaching, which again I always recall, I never thought this was um, accurate at first. I thought it was a stupid teaching from Ajahn Chah. But I did remember it clearly. And it was the story of the mango orchard. The mango orchard's story at first, I thought, this, this is rubbish. And then afterwards, you realize what a beautiful, accurate teaching that was. He said that his monastery, Wat Bapong, was a mango orchard with the mango, the trees having been planted by the Buddha himself. Now, his monastery was in uh, northeast Thailand. I'm pretty sure the Buddha never visited there and planted mangoes. <laughs> but nevertheless, he said that others. Don't know where this is leading, but it can't be very accurate. And then he said, those mango trees are still here. And there's so many mangoes, ripe, juicy, sweet, so delicious on these mango trees. You don't have to wait for them to be ripened. They're already ripened and sweet. But the only way you can get those mangoes, you can't get a ladder, you can't throw things at the tree and get them to fall. You can't shake the tree to get them to fall. These days, you won't be able to get a cherry picker or a helicopter or a drone to get those mangoes. There's only one way to get those mangoes. And that is to sit perfectly still under the mango tree and hold out your hand and a mango will fall. Ridiculous. In real life, you try that, and mango will fall on your head, not on your hand. <laughs> and you have to wait for hours just for that. 
So that made no sense at all to me. Mm-hmm. But then later on, when you understand how meditation works, that is so incredibly accurate. And sometimes you just put your hands up to your teacher. How can you make a simile like that, which is so true? If you shake the tree, nothing falls. Your job is to be perfectly still. Not want anything in the whole world. And all these amazing parts of Buddhism, which you've heard, the jhanas, the insights, the enlightenment experiences, they fall into your hand. And do you do anything? Absolutely no. That's one of the reasons why when people ask me, Ajahn Brahm, come on, be honest. You talk all about these jhanas and stuff. Can you do them? Can you experience them, Ajahn Brahm? And years ago, in Sri Lanka, a group of monks asked me that question. I could not use the excuse that a monk is not allowed to tell lay people about any of these things. He said, we're not monks, you can tell us. And so I gave them the answer. And I was very happy with this answer because it allowed me not just to make a claim or not make a claim, but to teach. Say, so Ajahn Brahm cannot enter jhana. That's being honest with you. Ajahn Brahm cannot enter jhana. I have to disappear, first of all. The sense of self, the me, the doer, that which makes you move under the mango tree, that vanishes. The Priya Mendes has to disappear. He won't get these deep meditations. The Prem has to just vanish completely away. And then these things, they just happen naturally. They fall into your hand. It's a very beautiful way of teaching. You can disappear, but you strive, you want, you never have enough peace, enough power for these mangoes to drop into your hand. That's one of the reasons why we keep these things quiet. Maybe I talk too much, I'm not sure, but anyway. Uh, That's why we keep these things quiet, because we don't want you trying to get anything. We want you to lessen your wants, attainments, or whatever. When you disappear, you'd be amazed what happens. That's where the selflessness comes into Buddhism. These aren't personal attainments. They're personal disappearances. Make sense? Okay, so disappear. What could be easier than that? Or as I said in the in the introduction to one of the books which I wrote, get lost. <laughs> so I wish you all to get lost. <laughs> okay.
that's met with a lot of compassion. Okay, so anything else we need to say? Okay, so please have a nice evening. If you want to, please one thing, don't wait for me before you leave the room here. Because sometimes I like to sit a bit longer when people think I'm sitting here and you can't leave till I go. And that's a lot of torture for you. So if you need to go, please, you can get up about three times and off you go. Is that clear? Okay, yeah, very good. <laughs> and see you in the morning. Again, the first few days you don't really have to just do all the schedules, but one schedule which I would ask you to do tomorrow to make sure you're on time is for breakfast. <laughs> That's optional, breakfast tomorrow morning. You can always have lunch. Or whatever. <laughs>